show all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. In this episode, I speak with Joe Hall, a fellow Englishman and a journalist with Cointelegraph. Joe's story gave great insight into the world of media, starting with his initial roles in traditional media, taking him throughout the so-called emerging markets, through to his current role with Cointelegraph. Why has he been guilty of Bitcoin propaganda? Why is it hard to make money on Bitcoin media? How does it feel having your content plagiarized? Thank you again, Joe, for joining. This was another great episode. Just before we hear from Joe, I'd like to take a quick moment to mention my sponsor, FastBitcoins.com. They're a Bitcoin-only exchange based in the Isle of Man on a really exciting journey. If you'd like to learn more about them, I encourage you to search back through my episode library and listen to a couple of key conversations. Firstly, Danny Brewster, the founder, CEO, and secondly, Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer. Both stories give an excellent insight into the people building the business. In the coming weeks, you can expect a custom referral link, which you can use on sign up to get the best possible rates. We haven't quite put the finishing touches on it yet, so please keep your eyes peeled. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to Bitcoin with Jake. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Hall. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Jake. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. I'm, um, I'm, I'm feeling a little homesick. I'm looking at you sitting in a, a decadent room with some green wallpaper and a Georgian property that reminds me of some similar things that my family grew up in over the years. So it's nice to speak to someone <laughs> in England. Um, and great yeah, to have so you on the show. Thank you for joining Oh, it's my pleasure, honestly. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a Bitcoin sister that I'm sat in here. And there's a long story to it. But I just wanted to say before that, that um, I've loved your Africa focus the past two pods okay. with um, Farida and Master Wansai. They were great episodes. So um, I feel like I've got big shoes to fill here. And uh, here <laughs> yeah, I am no pressure, Joe. No pressure <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah, I, I, I mean, and I love those conversations as well. It's, it's so cool how, you know, and Twitter is incredible for this, but within a few messages online, you can be speaking to someone on the other side of the world and the stories that they have as to why Bitcoin's important are so different to some of the stories that I think it's important for. And I mm. always think about asking people, uh, well, what problems have you got? And one of those problems is like to be something that Bitcoin can solve. And so I'm sure, I'm sure this will come up in, in your story, Joe. So uh, being a show about Bitcoin, let's start off there. So at some stage in your life, you have a friend somewhere or a, or a sibling who said, mate, you better check this thing out. And you probably went, mm, that looks like a load of shit. Take me back to that point or, or just after that when you, know, you came across it. And, and, and what was your story to Bitcoin? Technically, there was three uh, touch points like that. I guess you could say I was quite a slow learner and a slow adopter of Bitcoin. But <laughs> the first one was um, uh, back in 2011, uh, just before going to uni. And uh, a friend of mine was buying all sorts of um, amazing things on the internet uh, on Silk Road. And yeah. I just thought this was the most amazing invention, this e-commerce website that you can review people for inevitably illicit substances. And... Uh, I realized that he was paying for it with Bitcoin and I tried to use it myself a few times, but I'm not very tech savvy and I always struggle to actually acquire the Bitcoin. Uh, so it basically passed me by. And then, so that was like technically the first time that it came up in my life. And yeah, of course I kicked myself and wish I'd invested then and paid mm. attention. Mm. He actually did. And, um, he is, uh, I mean, he's, he's pretty wealthy, but he, he was so young coming into it that, um, he didn't grasp it and obviously traded it away. And he, he still trades to this day for fun, but he's quite like, uh, he's quite an anarchist, I guess. Okay. Um, 
And then the second touch point, like the proper one, was um, in 2018, sort of January time. I was surfing off the coast of Lisbon and uh, this Canadian fella with this amazing wetsuit uh, and like an amazing board. And he, he just looked like a rich surfer, which is, you know, in the surfer world, it's not that cool to be like this rich guy. Anyway, I was like, you know, where'd you get all this money from, basically? And then he explained to me that he was taking some time off to go do like a herbal medicine uh, university degree thing, like alternative teachings and all that. And he was a bit like hippie, um, like very surfer vibes. And uh, he explained to me that he made all his money through Bitcoin. And so that sort of was my another real world uh, use case. But then when it finally set, set in and I was like, OK, I get it now. Um, was having done a bit of my own research and that was in the Ivory Coast when my driver was driving me to work um, not because I was like super rich or anything but just because that, that was just the, set, the setup we had while working there and uh, he was explaining to me that he's receiving Bitcoin from his son who's living in Paris um, and you know it was used as his remittance tool and I was obviously quick to correct him and be like that's rubbish you know no one actually uses this thing it's uh, you know it's burning the environment and melting the ice caps and all these silly things and I realized, oh, wait, maybe I'm wrong here. And I should really do some proper digging into Bitcoin rather than blockchain and all that. And so that was, that was what, 2019? When the, the penny, the proverbial penny finally dropped. And I thought, oh, okay, this Bitcoin thing has some substance to it. And then from then on, I really dug deep. But I was in um, emerging markets around the world. So I was in like Tunisia, uh, Morocco, Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, the Ivory Coast, uh, I always forget the countries I've lived in, which is really embarrassing. Um, Serbia, uh, I can't remember. I need to like look at my um, my LinkedIn or something to work out where I've lived. <laughs> That's um, cool, though. Yeah, I mean, tra- travel is so a it's so an, well, it's probably the most liberating thing I've ever done. Like being able to get on a plane and take pick up a bag and just leave, and you suddenly pop up somewhere new. It's different smells, different temperature. Um, that the people dress differently they look different there's different cultures and it's the most fascinating thing i've ever done so now epic to have had a a job that took you to lots of places um mm. i had a no, not dissimilar experience living in asia for a bit but um this isn't about me this is about you joe so we'll stick to that so you mentioned <laughs> you, you mentioned emerging markets so um what role took you to emerging markets i assume that was with your career or was that something that you were working on the side with or yeah, yeah, it was originally with um, my career. There's, um, there's a French word, this is going to sound really pedantic, there's a French word um, called dépaysé, which means to be like, literally would translate as to be uncountried. And I've always like loved this feeling of like, you know, when you go to a new place, you know, you're saying like, oh, new smells, sounds, mm. people dress differently. And it's the idea of like being removed from your sort of habitual surroundings. And I really like thrive in that, um, in those sorts of settings. And that's what I've always sort of loved. Um, from a young age, I've always loved just being plonked somewhere random. I mean, like, okay, how are you going to survive this? Or how are you going to mm. get out of this sort of situation? So originally when I saw a job advert when I was 22, 23, um, I was in London, I was pretty depressed and I was doing a, a sort of grad job. And I saw this job which said, travel the world and get paid to do so. And mm. so in it, obviously immediately <laughs> I thought I it was a scam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I thought it was a scam. Obviously I was like, what is this new shit coin? And um <laughs> Uh, but I applied and uh, got flown out to Madrid and got through this weird interview process that was basically like uh, the, in, um, what's it called? The Apprentice mm-hmm. or, um, do they call it The Apprentice in the US? I forget. Uh, you know, when you sort of go through rounds. I know what you mean though. It's like a Donald Trump-esque bloke because um, it was Alan Sugar Correct. does it in England, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. You're and fired. In Madrid it was a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in, in Madrid it was a uh, French 
bloke who was equally charismatic and sort of boisterous and aggressive with his like interview style. And so by the end of the first two hours, four of us had been sent home. The end of the first day, another six had gone home. And by the third day of this interviewing process, it was just me and this other girl. And obviously, I, I should have seen this coming, but like the last round was we sat in front of the CEO and the COO. They say, okay, sell me your colleague. And then, you know, they pick you based off how well you can sell your competitor, your adversary. Wow. And by these, you know, by the third day, you've you've gone through a lot together. And so there's a sense of, you know, survival that obviously brings people together. And I was there selling her away. And then it was actually quite nice because they ended up hiring both of us. And that sort of started this journey into, um, I don't know really how to call it, but it's, some people call it the industry, like between commas. And it's basically this form of sort of pseudo journalism where you get dropped into um, emerging markets around the world and you uh, there's a guy and a girl and then there's like the team that supports the guy and the girl in doing their job. And you'd go to uh, you'd go to visit CEOs and ministers. So, for example, say we're in Serbia, we would go and see the Minister of Health, we'd see the Minister of Education, Minister of Defence. You take photos of them, you do an interview with them. And then with that content, you would then pitch pharmaceutical companies or schools or universities or whatever and go to them and say oh we'd like to interview as part of this report we're doing and while there was some editorial content to what we were doing ultimately you were like a supercharged sales team going around these countries and i was chewed up and spat out by this industry quite quickly only survived a year there most people last like six months to a year but those that stay in it for you know two to three years uh they you can do really quite well out of it but it was this very unethical, horrible way of selling. Um, but it also prepped me for a the world, <laughs> in the sense that you know you get dropped out in these random countries all over the world, and you have to re learn really quickly how institutions work, how businesses interact with one another, and affect essentially how um, corrupted a lot of places are around the world too. Mm. Particularly, you know, like yourself, I grew up in the UK, and we just assume that um, institutions are reliable. <laughs> so along this journey i think i was in some ways prepping myself for what bitcoin solves mm -hmm. um and eventually i got picked up by a bloomberg subsidiary because they tend to pick some of these guys that work in this industry and there's lots of books written about this um this industry thing it's been going for about 50 years and there are some amazing stories of people meeting with like dictators and networking with you know Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or whatever, and then trying to sell him an advertisement off the back of an interview. So some really like far out stuff that happens. Um, but yeah, eventually uh, I got poached by this sort of English subsidiary of Bloomberg, which sell their research and content um, mm -hmm. to yeah the, the big boss, which was Bloomberg. And with them, that's when I started my sort of journalism career in earnest, because before that, I think it was more like sponsored content or advertorial work. And that's yeah what took me around uh, the 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 real emerging markets let's say so that's you know places in sub-Saharan Africa, um, Trinidad and Tobago I guess that's sort of on the cusp of being like an emerging emerging country. the The actual definition of these countries changes all the time. It's like it's a very Western lens that people see it through, mm. but um, it used to be called like third world, and then it became uh, like impact countries, then emerging markets, then I don't developing countries for a while as well. Um, I don't really know, but yeah, it took me all around the world and um, allowed me to travel. And I still do that now with my work at Cointelegraph where I'm a reporter. So I like to write about all things Bitcoin and uh, I've been accused of being on, uh, I've been accused of writing pro-Bitcoin propaganda, which I, I wear as a badge of honor. And I'm very, <laughs> I was very happy when someone <laughs> said that about me. <laughs>
and uh yeah and, and i've sort of taken those skills that i acquired in the mainstream media world and brought them to the i want to call it the bitcoin world but ultimately it's the crypto world because i, I still work for coin telegraph and uh yeah through that i've traveled a lot too awesome joe thank you for sharing all that there's there's so many things i'd like to draw from but just to pedal back a bit remind me the name of the job advert you saw to take you that took you to spain so travel the world and get paid for it yeah Is effectively it i can probably find it somewhere in my notes that's, that's all good but it's 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 interesting because um some people would read that and go fuck yeah how do i how do i apply and some people would read that and be like no way and what intrigues me is the different types of characteristics of people and the 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 truth is you you apply for that job it lasted for a year you got through the um recruitment process you learned a ton and then you actually did get a job that took you around the world and paid you so it's kind of like does that make sense? Like your experience with the Bloomberg subsidiary, you're being paid to go to those emerging markets. This is exactly what happened. So it's mm-hmm. just, that's really cool. Like, you know, you, you saw an opportunity, you followed it, and, and in a sense, here you are today. Um, what mm-hmm. I'd love to understand about that experience in emerging markets, and this is something, so I moved to Singapore when I was just 24 years old in 2012. Um, mm-hmm. And what was so refreshing about it was, and this is another reason why I love travel, is the perspective you get. Like when you grow up, you go to British school, you live in the UK, you're on the side of Europe, you are European ultimately. And, you know, you have all these preconceived notions of, of, you know, global dominance and the, and the heyday, and you're just fed this propaganda in hindsight, what it was. Yeah. Um, but the perspective is a lot of other people in the world live their own lives, doing their own things, building their own businesses. They don't give a shit about a small Island on the side of Europe. And mm-hmm. that was actually very, very refreshing. I found so perhaps just talk us through some of the perspectives you gained from going to these different countries and um, like what were some of the things that were most impactful to you? You already mentioned corruption of institutions. Um, Was Mm -hmm. that something that was particularly strong and resonated with you? Explain to me a little more about that experience. Oh, for sure. And I think rightly so about the whole, we are a little Island that is trying to claim and sort of hold on to the significance that we had maybe a hundred years ago. Uh, We need to, we need to move on and (laughs) realize that no one cares about the UK or England anymore. Um, <laughs> they don't i mean in singapore this place mad. is flying and they do not england like whatever you know yeah and that's great yeah, in next. Some ways. Mm-hmm. um yeah in terms of the corruption i mean uh in somewhere like abidjan uh i used to pay my coffee bribe every day on the way to work where i get flagged down by one of the local uh policemen i say that you know between speech marks because um you know, he, he'd see me, um, this white guy in a suit on the way to work. And eventually we became quite friendly and I would have a little chat and I'd give him my euro on the way to work and it became my little toll. And I'd expense that as my, um, my corruption or my bribe, uh, on the way to work. Um, so there was, there's that levels of corruption where it's just societal and you're just expected like that will go all the way up as in the police managers and the government know that they don't need to pay policemen as much because they will be bribing people on the street anyway. So there's this sort of um, informal economy, which is so large, but it's just so accepted. Mm. And there was a similar instance in Tunisia. Well, just looking at Tunisia's GDP, 130% of its GDP is informal. So there's like one GDP, which is the formal stuff, which is, you know, declared taxes and big businesses and things that are, you know, documented for. And then there's the cash economy, which is larger than that existing economy. Wow. So, so which is it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it and then i had, I had one story of um 
my my ex-girlfriend in Mexico, her dad uh, was a restaurateur and he was looking to open a fourth restaurant and he was adamant um, about doing it all by the book in terms of getting a liquor license and in terms of getting all the necessary documentation you need to open a you know a restaurant in, the, in Mexico City. And uh, he got the liquor license dude to come around the first time and the guy was like, okay, yeah, it all looks ship shape. Here's how much it's going to cost. And then, you know, I would also like the 20 quid for me that goes into my back pocket, which we all know is part and parcel of living and doing business in Mexico City. And uh, he was like, no, no, I'm not going to pay that. And he's like, well, okay, you're going to have to go to the higher ups. And so he went to the, you know, he went to his manager, he went to the manager of that manager. And two years later, so he's been toiling away at this for two years. He eventually gets to like the head of food and beverages uh, for the region of Mexico City, which is, you know, 20 odd million people, really serious um, job with serious responsibilities and he walks into the office and have this long chat and the guy's really trying to empathize with my ex uh, my ex's dad being like oh yeah i know how hard it is to run a restaurant next to a city and you know this that and the other and it comes to like actual documentation and signing it all and he goes okay yeah here's here's what i'll sign here's what you'll sign you can get your liquor license you can start selling alcohol in your in your restaurant and he's like brilliant thank you very much they sign and he's like and you know i'd also like my uh, Two hundred dollars. You know the little. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's like, "You serious? Like, I've waited two years for this just to do it all above board, and it's still like endemic corruption. Yeah, it's just wow. so, so, so you can't really fight it in in certain places. And again, it's where I don't know. For me, Bitcoin comes in and you know, it eradicates it all. It's it's this beautiful solution to it. Um, but yeah, I've got but, countless examples well, of you, these no, weird let, sorts let's, of corruption. Let's keep going through that because um, this is one of the reasons I love this podcast. These are all small stories, but they add up to create your lens on why Bitcoin's important. So um, can you name a couple of other stories that spring to mind that, you know, you think Bitcoin solves in a sense? And, you know, you've already mentioned that you, you had three touch points, you know, um, obviously everyone likes getting high at uni, but fuck, we didn't buy Bitcoin when we were at uni getting high. Damn, we should have done that. Um, and then 2018, like someone's actually clearly done pretty well because they're in a cool swimsuit. How the hell what was it you said? Like a, a, a wetsuit, yeah. A wetsuit, yeah. Um, and then so 2019, Ivory Coast, and someone's actually doing serious remittance. Oh my God, that's mm -hmm. cool. So mm. it, it's, it is always a evolution in a sense. So yeah, do you, do you have a couple more stories like that you can share? Mm. Um, because yeah, I think it's sure. really important, you know, when everyone says Bitcoin fixes this, well, what's it fixing? Um, and stories like mm. this are very helpful to explain that. Yeah, yeah. And for the Ivorian guy, Guillaume, who was my driver, he said so the best part about his story as well was that not only was he receiving money from uh, his son in Paris, but he was also looking after it. And I was asking him, I was like, why are you leaving it like on your phone in a wallet? Why are you not, you know, converting it into CFR, which is like the, the mm. West African franc? And he was like, oh, well, because I know that no one can touch this. And I was like, wow, you like, you, you really get it. Like, you really understand that this is, you know, money that you can't debase, that no one can steal. It's inconfiscatable or whatever the word is. Mm. Um, and I don't know, it was in, I was in Tunisia once on the way to the airport. And I realized that once you cross through uh, into the actual airport itself, you can no longer spend Tunisian dinars. And Tunisian dinars can't actually be exchanged, or it's very hard to exchange them outside of the country. Mm. So you're in the country of Tunisia, in the capital city, in its airport, and you can't actually spend them. <laughs> so wow. you're like, w what is going on here? This paper, which 200 meters ago was worth 10 pounds, is now worth absolutely nothing. 
Mm-hmm. Or in Trinidad and Tobago, they um, replaced the $100 Trinidadian note uh, with a plastic version. Um, and so, that, yeah, they essentially were upgrading their notes, which again, when you just say that out loud, you're like, what, we're upgrading pieces of paper to be more realistic pieces of paper. Mm. But anyway, they, they went through this process and the banks anticipated that this might take, you know, a couple of months of people coming into the banks and swapping them the old ones for the new ones. And they realized it was going to take about two years because people had so much money at home under the mattresses or, you know, stored away in hiding places. And I, I spoke to one guy who was queuing at the bank once who had a wheelbarrow and we've all seen that image. I'm sure you saw that image, Jake, at school of the um, Weimar Republic, mm. um, the hyperinflation and like yeah, their the Germans queuing, walking the wheelbarrows. wheelbarrows of cash. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And this was like 2020, uh, no, 2019. And there's uh, a guy queuing outside the bank with a wheelbarrow of $100 Trinidadian notes, which wow. is about six or seven pounds. And I was like, what's going on? Like, also, where do you get all this money? Do you not have to like, is there not some sort of KYC AML thing for, for banks here? He's like, oh, well, I'm a priest, you see? And I was like, oh, okay. Is that your line, is it? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I'm actually a priest. I was like, he wasn't wearing like, the collar or anything yeah. like that. And but it's obviously a very good way of getting away with the fact that you've got lots and lots of um, dollars at home. And, you know, all the, all these things with me for like, gosh, like, firstly, why do we have paper? You know, everything we do digitally now and, you know, you, you bounce around most countries in Africa, they all have a smartphone. Um, you know, yeah. wherever you go, a smartphone, smartphone nowadays can cost $40, $50. And all of these people don't have banks. Like, why would they have a bank when an ATM fee costs you three or four pounds, which could be the equivalent of a day's work, when a money transfer would cost you, you don't know how much, and it might not get there instantly, it might even get rejected, it might take, you know, two, three days. So when you look at, I mean, I was always in Africa as like a, a semi-tourist, I would be there for three to six months at a time, mm-hmm. sort of go in, learn what I need to do, get the research and then sort of fly out again. Um, but you'd get really nice connections with people there. Like I'm still in communication with Guillaume uh, in the Ivory Coast or with Bishir, who was uh, our mechanic turned driver in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And with all of them, I'm sending them sats randomly at times, just being like, yo, what's up? And, you know, sending them 5,000 sats or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't do that with cash, can I? I can't do that with a bank. There's, no. There's, there's no way. So, yeah, I guess it was all like a weird sort of um, slow orange pilling, but from not from the use case of the Western world, because in the Western world, you know, the whole thing is it's a store of value. It's Bitcoin has always been this investment mm-hmm. when ultimately it's not, it's peer to peer cash, right? It's cash that we can just send to each other mm-hmm. with no intermediary and intermediaries throughout history have just <laughs> done people over, you know, they've got rich and that centralization of power has always ended up with this inequality that has created the West versus, you know, the, the global South or, or whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> Yeah, it's like it's like um, humans just can't help themselves, and mm. self-interest is in some cases a incredibly powerful force for good, but in other cases tips the scales in the other direction, whether or not people intended it to. Um, I'm not someone that doesn't believe in the lack of evil. Like evil exists, there's no doubt about it. But um, mm. in this particular conversation, like. Uh, I, I worked in the startup space for many years and we were always hustled, like solve the biggest problems, solve the biggest problems. 
and I was looking at a bunch of different things. I won't bore you with all the failed startups that I, I went through, but <laughs> I, I suddenly realized that Bitcoin is money is actually the biggest problem. Like, holy mm. shit, this is so massive. I can't even comprehend how big it is. And hence here we are having this conversation and sparked into, you know, changing all sorts of things in my life and going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, so to speak. But it's, it's, I totally agree. I came to it from a store of value perspective. So I mentioned briefly mm-hmm. offline at the start that um, I had an inheritance to manage after my father's death. And so I'm looking at inflation. I'm then having to invest and I'm looking at lots of different asset classes and investing is really hard. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it goes wrong all the time. And so coming across something that is able to store your purchasing power over time with very little, if not zero counterparty risk is like, wow. And it completely changes the definition of ownership. Mm-hmm. Like your, your friend's example, you mentioned that he keeps it on his phone because he owns it. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I own a house. Well, do you? You have a piece of paper for a building within a government jurisdiction Look at what happened the last two years. They'll just shut you down if they want to. So do you really own mm-hmm. that? Or, or whatever other different example we can think of. So yeah, I really, I really chime with you in terms of like how the different use cases are so interesting. Um, and particularly the conversations I've had lately with Farida uh, and Master Guantai, the, the, the use of Bitcoin in Africa, it's going gangbusters. And they don't care about yeah, yeah. short-term volatility because it's simply a better solution to what they were offered before. And they also know that from a corruption perspective, the status quo is an absolute shit show. So anything else is going to be a better option. Um, yeah. Wow. It's why so pitching cool, Bitcoin. That's it? why pitching Bitcoin in, in countries like this is just so much easier as well. Well, you don't like need to. UK you just get it straight yeah. away, right? That's what they, they both said to me. You don't need to pitch Bitcoin to people that live in, you know, in Togo or Kenya because they just get it straight mm-hmm. away. Um, and that's why it's always fun when you see these headlines about like Bitcoin has no value. And you're like, I just spoke to someone who lives in Nairobi and people are using Bitcoin every day and it's happening faster and faster and faster and faster. Like you're literally lying to whoever reads your shitty newspaper. But um, before I go on too Bitcoin much around no value, there, Joe, please send me some, you know. Yeah. So, so, so the role that you were doing with this Bloomberg subsidiary, um, talk me through the kind of stories or, or work that you were doing and what kind of skills did you pick up through that process? So I'm a big believer in you learn on the job, right? So yep. you, know, you go through university or whatever you might've done and suddenly you're in a job, you're being paid to be there and you have to just figure it out. Um, so, mm-hmm. so what are some of the things that you learned during that role that you've taken forward into what you're now doing? Sure. So effectively, if I explain how we did it, it'll sort of explain or maybe illustrate yeah, yeah, whatever the you skills think that were accrued. But so we'd get dropped in a country, and if there was a team that had been there in the past four or five years or so, we'd tap into their pool of contacts anyway. But it was effectively like running a mini startup, where you had to gather research, which you could then package up and put into articles or big reports. Like our big money maker was these sort of annual reports that we'd sell on these countries. Um, so say I'm dropped in Abidjan. Uh, first thing is, okay, we need somewhere to live. So, you know, you're looking at, are there Airbnbs nearby? Are there people we can speak to? Like we need to get somewhere that's like safe enough and comfortable enough to live, um, not be robbed. You know, uh, we need a driver, we need, um, an office. We need all these things that are going to make it so that we can get this sort of mini business, mini research business on the ground. Um, usually we'd have a big sponsor that would be paying for like our visa into the country and our flight. So they would help us to some extent. And that might be like a governmental office, like a, it'd be like a subsidiary of the um, 
Ministry of Trade or something that realized that, okay, this is going to be read by Bloomberg investors or Bloomberg readers. Therefore, we need to talk about how the cocoa industry is booming. So that, that was sort of the reason why they would pay for us to be there in the first place. And so once we've got like a place to live, somewhere to, someone to drive us around, and obviously that requires the recruitment of these people and um, an office space, then it's a question of, okay, we need to work out what is actually going on in this country from a macro level, because we need to write this report in, in the next year that explains essentially what is going on in the Ivory Coast um, for business people looking at, uh, okay, where are the opportunities? Where can I put some money and maybe get a thousand next return? Maybe I just park it in a hotel and it accrues and it, it um, keeps its value over time. So that would be a question of, okay, everyone's always, always looking for like a godfather in the network, like that one person that can sort of introduce you to other people in that network. Um, and from then you're sort of in the, uh, uh, you're in sort of the business in uh, the business network um, in Trinidad and Tobago, for example, it was the surfers. I don't know why, but the surfers were just very like rich people um, in Portugal. Say you'd get through there, get there through golf mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Ivory coast. It was a lot of drinking in bars. Um, so all, all really fun things to do. Right. But it was really quite an old school way of networking and getting to who the business people are, who the key opinion leaders are and who the decision makers are, because they're usually going to be the people that know where the investment opportunities are and therefore find the stories to write about. Say a chemical plant has just, um, built a new sort of wing to their factory or something. Okay. That could be interesting. They might be looking for investors there or say, you know, the cocoa plant example from earlier, um, maybe, you know, they've had a real glut, um, in the supply this year, all, all these sort of little things that are going on that you can then do sort of feeder articles from inevitably me talking to my driver about Bitcoin. I was like, no way. Like I need to write about Bitcoin for, you know, effectively Bloomberg. And, uh, so I did actually manage to write a couple of, um, pseudo FUD articles, I'd say about, uh, Bitcoin and crypto while working in some of these countries. Um, one of them was actually on the remittance piece. My, my name is no longer there because I asked them to remove it. But um, it was basically like Bitcoin uh, remittance into um, French-speaking West Africa has gone up X percent as per usefultulips.com and some you know, glass node or whatever. And then a few interviews of people on the ground. And then a couple of sound bites from people that would say, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, Bitcoin is a scam. And then it would say, Bitcoin is a risky investment and is part of the cryptocurrency um, asset class, which shouldn't be touched. And then finally, Bitcoin uses more energy than, I don't know, Denmark. Um, yeah. Avoid Bitcoin. Real, <laughs> so it'd be, real, it'd be like, that kind of reporting. <laughs> the kind of the final kind of slamming of the, of the door at the end, just like, forget it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, so Joe, balanced. Um, how cool. I mean, uh, we've only got an hour, but I can only imagine like, you know, drinking in a few bars in the Ivory Coast takes you to some interesting places. And it's, it's that kind of experience that I love so much about getting away from home and going and trying new things. And um, I'm sure that was a huge amount of fun. Um, what I'd love to draw on, though, is this concept of FUD and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what is information? What's real? What's not real? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question uh one of my followers shout out to tricky and he came i said what can bitcoiners do to combat the onslaught of negative press and i said well what do you mean by that and he just said the fud the negative outlook the straight up lies so someone like yourself that's now working for coin telegraph perhaps you can talk a little mm-hmm. more about them as well and how you ended up transitioning into this new role from the previous one um mm. the the world's a difficult place to decipher 
So finding trusted sources for information is really an important part of, you know, survival in today's world. And Bitcoin in particular is this incredible source for truth in terms of its design. Once you dig under the onion and, and start pinging back the layers, um, what does it mean as a journalist then in terms of how this all fits together and, and what are some of your thoughts on this? Sure. So this is something that beleaguers me and I really struggle with because I've tried to write about Bitcoin from the inside in the sense that I was at mainstream media publications and I was trying to write positively about Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, okay. And I couldn't. Uh, as I struggled and inevitably it led to me leaving um, the company I Sorry, worked for. Sorry, just for me to jump in, I wouldn't normally do this and cut you off, but when you say you couldn't, what do you mean you couldn't? Why couldn't you do that? I mean, I would have lots of conversations with colleagues. This was like behind closed doors where I'd be like, listen, this Bitcoin thing, I think we might've got it wrong because we, you know, I've seen it firsthand, yeah. which is, you know. Primary reporting. research is saying otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. which we never do in the you know journalism industry anymore anyway is that sort of thing is kind of dying which is just bizarre um but that's a whole other thing anyway um so i, I talked to me like listen i've done all the um necessary research into the blockchain thing and i'm pretty sure it's not working as we would reveal in countless reports and then i bring up the bitcoin thing which is obviously the only use case of uh, blockchain technology on a big scale that works and say to them, listen, I've, I've read a few books, I've, I've listened to a couple of podcasts by now, and I've seen firsthand people that are saving in Bitcoin or that are using remittance, you know, for Bitcoin. And I've also, you know, reported on it. But every time we report on it, we report it in this light, which is um, Bitcoin is this very ris risky thing that investors should not go towards. Why, why do we have to frame it in that way? Why can't I start to write about other things like um, this, this fellow in Zimbabwe that's... Um, accepting bitcoin for payments for his cars or the guy in uh mozambique who's switching between uh bitcoin on the lightning network for his uh prepaid sim cards for his phone and every time it was like mm, no nah, i don't think so mm, no i don't think you've got it right there mm, no like because inevitably they're going to say no because they haven't not not they've done the work but they've never picked up a Bitcoin book or read or listened to a Bitcoin podcast. And when you say the they, this is, this is, sorry to cut in again, Joe, but when you say they, this is literally your, your management structure within the organization. Yeah. And so there's basically yeah. one or two tiers above you and they just slam the door straight away because Bitcoin just isn't a subject that on an editorial level, they want you to be spending any time on, or do you think they've specifically got regulations in place? that says like, like squash this thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that would be comforting to, to think. But I think it's more just ignorance and just the okay. idea that they don't understand it. And okay. the narrative that we all live through is that Bitcoin is bad. You talk to most people on the street nowadays. I mean, it's much better now than it used to be maybe five years ago. But people will just bring up some horrible thing about its volatility. Okay, that's true. Um, <laughs> it's energy use or, um, you know, the fact that... Criminals use it. That, yeah, all these like silly FUD things that we're exposed to. Um, because because that's the narrative that's just what's accepted and people don't look under the surface of it and that's that's the same for lots of topics in in the world you know and that's kind of why bitcoin is also easy to disregard and just brushed one side because people just say oh you're just being conspiratorial like mm. obviously there aren't some you know obviously the fiat system isn't broken in, in such a way so yeah i would have these conversations with colleagues with management um trying to change the angle with which we approach bitcoin and um and this you know borderless money that is effectively improving people's lives around the world and each time it would just it wouldn't be knocked back but it would just be an awkward conversation 
And I was there like, what, what am I doing here? Why am I, why am I trying to pitch this thing, which no one really cares about and no one is wish, like, no one is seeking to change their mind about either. And on top of that, you know, I was a, um, I was like a senior editor for them, but I wasn't higher, high enough up to actually, um, you know, change things properly. There was definitely more rungs Hierarchy. above me. Yeah. 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 And so after a while I was like, well, this is frustrating. I want to go work somewhere where I can actually write about this honestly. And so I started looking at um, crypto jobs. And then the question was, okay, do I want to work for a Bitcoin magazine where I can just spout about Bitcoin all day long? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to go to somewhere, you know, like a coin telegraph where I can talk about Bitcoin to people that understand crypto, but aren't quite there. I mean, okay. that sounds arrogant, but you know what I mean? Like, aren't, um, you know what I mean? A lot of these projects are going to be at zero in 10 years time. Let's, let's, let's be honest here. Yeah. So why not um, try to try to help educate people, entertain people um, like subtly orange pill people through reporting of good stories of Bitcoin around the world. And that's kind of what I've been trying to make my uh, uh, sort of core output now. And that's kind of to the point of the, um, I forget the guy that tweeted um, to you with the question, but uh, you know, how, how do we improve or well, how do we undermine this? handle is Tricky at Planned tricky. Earth. Shout out to Tricky <laughs> out there somewhere. Maybe <laughs> well, a she, go. who knows? A he or she or a they, who knows? Or they, yeah. Um, so tricky at okay, Joe, Earth. cool. It's, it's really so, hard. Um, how interesting. So if I could kind of, uh, distill this. So you're someone who is working in the journalism business, was traveling the world and was um, being asked to do primary research of interesting business opportunities. And one of the primary bits of research you did was the use of Bitcoin and the organization you're working for just shut down your primary research. And so you said, fuck this, I'm going to go and find an organization that's willing to let me talk about this. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I love that. Um, and so you found this place. So I don't know much about Cointelegraph. Please tell a little, um, tell me or tell those of us that listen that don't know much about them. And Shall I shill um, it to you? Sorry? <laughs> Shall I shill it to you? Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. Because I think it's important to, you know, if they're owned by a bunch of shitcoiners, then the fact that letting you talk about Bitcoin is interesting. And the fact that um, you found someone who's got a more open mind to the stories that Bloomberg or whoever their subsidiary was, wasn't willing to, to be open-minded to. That's a step in the right direction. And, mm. you know, it depends what you define as Bitcoin adoption. Um, I think you can get people telling you that, you know, we're at 0.1% and people telling you that we're at 10%. Um, I've had literally those, those bigger, broader ranges of, of, um, of adoption rates in the last just few weeks. So uh, it, it depends, right? If someone's got 10 pounds worth of Bitcoin, well, they've got 10 pounds worth of Bitcoin. If they've got 90% of their net wealth in Bitcoin, well, they've adopted it as a savings technology. That's completely <laughs> different levels of adoption. Mm. Um, but a big part of that adoption curve is education. And so really what a journalist like yourself is doing is educating people. And I love that. And that's what this Bitcoin podcast is also about, just talking about people's individual stories to it. Um, so yeah, a bit more about Cointelegraph, please. And what incentivizes them in terms of their business structure and why does that enable you to write about Bitcoin? And then equally, mm-hmm. like, what's some of the, the best stories you've been able to write as a result and some of the feedback you've got from them? Sure. So Cointelegraph is one of the oldest uh, sort of crypto publications. Um, It's a media platform, but it also does journalism within that. So you've got the news, reviews, analysis, that sort of thing. But you've also got um, sponsored content, advertorial, and the things that effectively pay my salary. 
because it is such an old um, publication, I, I haven't actually met the owner, but I would assume that he was into Bitcoin, right? Like if, you, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're in the crypto space in 2013, that was when, I don't know, like things like Dash and stuff like that were around. Yeah. Um, there were definitely alts existing back then, um, but you, you would hope that he would uh, have the, and I'm, I'm sure he does, have the vision of Bitcoin and had understood Bitcoin back then. Otherwise, why would you want to create this sort of project that takes coin and puts it in the in the name of the company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of you know why it writes about um, all the other coins under the sun, is because it's also a business, right? And businesses have got to be profitable. And um, as I'm sure your DMs on Twitter or whatever accounts you use are full of, it'll be someone saying, "Please, can you talk about my NFT project? Please, can you talk about my new token, or whatever it is?" Because there are huge marketing budgets behind all these teams, and. Mm-hmm purely because the reason of there is no marketing team behind Bitcoin, is there? So it's very hard to make money off um, Bitcoin and only Bitcoin, which is presumably why Bitcoin magazine has gone down the route of, um, you know, conferences and, uh, you know, sort of things behind paywalls. Because it it is, yeah, I think it it must be really hard to to manage a full Bitcoin only business. These all sound like excuses, but they're more just like a framework (laughs) within, you know, how how Cointelegraph operates. um, It it resonates with me. And I love this subject because... Um, without really meaning to, I've founded a small media business and I actually have signed a contract for my first sponsor um, to start in September. So I'm not going to reveal that quite yet. Yeah, it's very exciting. So like all startup projects, that first paying customer, holy shit, you've you've got some traction, you've got some product market fit, you know, who else might pay you? How can you improve your your service to them? and they're a Bitcoin exchange, so I can say that much. And they're incentivized to get people to exchange fiat for Bitcoin. And it makes sense, right? I'm a Bitcoin-only podcast sending customers in their direction. But what intrigues me is the, the very business model behind media. So mm-hmm. uh, a simple example, I have a friend who works here in Melbourne. He's actually now switched to go and work for Spotify advertising, but he was working for one of the big networks here in Australia. And um, he was an advertising guy dealing with one of the large supermarket chains here. And for example, the news desk was supposedly autonomous to the ad team. But the supermarket chain, if there was a, for example, a story that was, you know, X supermarket chain is underpaying employees on Christmas Day. It's a negative Mm -hmm. story. It's no longer, you know, the family's best friend with low prices forever. They're like an evil kind of, you know, corporate Goliath. And the advertising team gets a phone call from the supermarket and says, look, we pay you a shitload of money to advertise during the sport on a Friday night. We do not want your news desk talking about this story. Shut it down now. Mm-hmm. So the incentive model for a media business using this type of advertising model is to do whatever the customer wants, which is to tell good stories about companies or people that may not be that good. In a Bitcoin world, in theory, you could, for example, fund a project with today, 50,000 pounds worth of Bitcoin, you sit it on the balance sheet for four years, if the purchasing power increases at the rate we think it might, you might suddenly have half a million pounds worth of cash to play around with. And suddenly, you can almost have advertising free media, you have an education business, you create information. So as someone who's worked in the journalism space, like where do you see this all going? And what are the incentive models that are going to be in play in the future? Um, And how might that change our perception of information and how we trust information and the sources we get it from? Um, Mm -hmm. And just for example, the last couple of years, the 
there's no doubt that there's been huge censorship online from all sorts of different businesses for all sorts of different types of interest groups for all sorts of reasons not to go down that hole but that's mm. largely because the the information that people consume is paid for by advertising and mm -hmm. so the business model is do whatever the customer says right so yeah any thoughts on that and where it might go yeah sure i mean it went through my head when i was trying to uh swap from you know mainstream media to uh crypto media because i was like okay i need to eat still um, i yep. need to be employed um, do i go alone or do i build up my own brand and build trust with customers and you know effectively do what you're doing which is you know um making yourself the platform from which mm -hmm. you can then monetize and then live and the inevitably yeah there's a lot of um conflict of interest I'm, I'm not sure how to frame it between you know the fact that coin telegraph is a media company that also is supporting crypto companies and we all go to the same conferences we all share the same advertising spaces and you know when reading pieces you also have to read it through the the lens of okay um everything has a bias because there is no such thing as unbiased anyway and why would there be a bias between say i don't know celsius and cointelegraph back in you know january february march time of, the, of this year and there are there are and there are also lots of pr teams that are in my inbox every morning saying hi please could you write about this hi please could you write about that really wow and it's all yeah yeah i mean it's inevitable and regardless of what news desk you're on people want that um seal of approval um, you know, if I was at the, the, uh, the Bloomberg stuff, then yeah, I'd also get companies saying, please write about me, please do a profile about this. Here's some quotes, please insert this into your piece. And that, that's just normal in whatever sort of journalism field you're in, but obviously the crypto world, it's, it's new, it's unregulated, it's fast, things go up in flames one day to the next. Mm. So yeah, if, if anyone's, uh, you know, an avid reader of all the crypto journals, then just know there's a lot of money changing hands and that's perfectly normal. And a lot of stuff it will say sponsored, but everything has a bias <laughs> and that's something to be wary of. And in terms of what, what should the future look like or what would I like the future to look like of this um, sort of journalism world, Ideally, you know, you get to websites and you just um, tap your laptop or something with your card or scan it with a, a phone and you pay like five sats to read an article or there'll be some sort of subscription model to get the information from the people you like. And I thought that Twitter would Twitter plus Bitcoin would have um, got us there already, but we're not quite there yet. Right. We have paywalls behind certain, you know, big magazines like the New York Times or whatever. But in terms of like, say for your content, you distribute that through Spotify, right? And therefore you're not really getting paid by Spotify, you'll get paid by the sponsors. But why can't you just have your own channel, Lightning channel, which someone you know sends sats to, and that's your payment for creating this content? That there has to be a way of sort of, we've seen the breakdown of you know the printing press, the printing press was information, uh, sorry, the printing press was books, the internet was information, and now Bitcoin is money. What's it gonna take to break down the, the news cycle? into being more trustworthy and more point of um, reference. We sort of have it with Twitter. Like I, I don't know if you remember at the start of the Ukraine war, there was a journalist that was sort of documenting his travels outside of Ukraine. And what he was saying was so much more insightful. And I learned so much more than all of like the Western press. And so like nowadays, all of my news effectively comes from Twitter because I know that in a couple of clicks and a phone call, I can get to the source of the person that's in, for example, the burning house or, you know, the, the, the war zone, whatever it may be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm just wondering, how do we get to that next step of, OK, I can pay you for that information or the reporting that you do outsource rather than it being held in this sort of um, prison or the centralized entity, which then 
edits the way in which um, it disputes information. On the other hand, it's also really important that we do have good editors and we do have good curators of information and we do have those people that know how to shape um, a story and know how to write well and know how to edit well. Um, so I think there's always going to be sort of a, a space for that too. And there's always going to be a space for like really good journalism. And, mm. um, you know, because that's also one of the amazing things about being, being a human, right, is that we can entertain all these different thoughts at, at any time. And we are all full of um, hypocrisy and juxtapositions and, and contrasts, right? Mm. So I think it's um, important to have the two spaces. But yeah, I, I, I would love to be able to do the, the first one, which is, you know, just people, I get paid directly to do the reporting. Mm. And I can write about whatever I want to write about um, when I want, but um, but at the same time, yeah, love Coin Telegraph. Go read Coin Telegraph. Great content. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> and people will, people will after this conversation for sure. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned briefly, I spent some time in the digital product space doing startups, and uh, this idea of value for value, I think, is extremely interesting. Yeah. So you know, uh, a platform like Fountain, for example, where you can go and stream Sats directly to a podcast host, and that host mm -hmm. can have it set up in such a way that all Sats received for that specific episode are split, for example, fifty-fifty between you and I. So, from mm -hmm. appearing as a guest on the show, you get fifty percent of all of the Sats that get sent to Bitcoin with Jake. And oh, you, I didn't they, know this part of it. Yeah, they, I knew that you they, could added another layer. Okay. Um, to be honest, I haven't had the best um, experience with Fountain as a product. I'm, I, I hold products to quite a high level, having been in the space, and I just mm -hmm. it's a bit clunky; it doesn't really work for me very well. I'm immediately like, and yeah. it heats up your phone, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets just so like hot, dropped. Sorry, um, but it will improve because they're still going right. People are using it, and that's it's all about traction and then speed of product development. Um, but it strikes me that, like Twitter, for example, it, it's it's corrupt. You know, it so obviously is is willing to um, echo certain stories and completely suppress others. So at some stage, maybe a similar like equivalent to, to Twitter will be built on top of Bitcoin in which every profile has a lightning um, wallet and can send and receive micropayments. And therefore, as a journalist, you could be based on this piece of software and you could pump out stories and you get paid for each bit of content specifically. It's very, very exciting. I agree. And the cool thing about it is obviously it's more of a, um, a demand pull rather than supply push type scenario where yeah. if you can create a following of 100 people that love what you do and ask for more of it, you just create more of it. In some ways, it's kind of similar to like Netflix building this huge um, uh, viewership of people streaming uh, TV and they can watch what's popular. So they can then predict what kind of content to create to keep people on their platform. This is something that traditional production houses, like they're fucked. They have no idea in comparison to what Netflix can see as to what to create for future um, box office hits, et cetera. And, and then I would tailor being, the, yeah, they yeah, can so, tailor the, uh, the, the advert you see based on who you are as well. So say they've made yeah. that amazing content, they can then show you the fight scenes, whereas they can show your partner, say the, the romantic scenes, if that's in wow. A couple of right? yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah okay. It so goes really crazy granular. stuff that goes on. <laughs> um, but I, what's cool about this though is it would it would change the incentive model for the creation of information, and instead of creating clickbait to have advertising banners next to, you'd be incentivized to actually like do some deep reporting. Um, 
yeah how cool okay and so is there any um like locations or sources for information obviously your articles joe um that you would direct people towards at this stage for high quality bitcoin related journalism or perhaps this is like spitballing with you just for a second an opportunity for the future where it's like okay well we actually see a space here where no one's really properly doing hard primary research that you can then actually sell to people because it's such high quality you know let's make it happen type thing um, which mm. i'd be all up for helping do do you know what i mean i think it's you know it's all about following opportunities yeah i know Gigi's working quite hard on the whole value for value thing in the journalism reporting space and, and okay. making it so you can directly stream sats to that to creator or reporter of that information and i think in general the space we are the loudest voices in sort of bitcoin twitter crypto twitter are the big profiles that just retweet stuff that they've just stumbled across so mm. there's very little at source reporting and it's something i really pride myself in like i'm always the first to fly out somewhere or travel to somewhere or to jump on a call and be like yo i've heard this thing is this is this legit you know why are you saying this um who's told you to say it you know these sorts of questions because a lot of the reporting that we see and this is in the mainstream as well is just hearsay and that's that's just not good enough especially when it's then being bleated out to it's bullshit right accounts. yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 kind of fanning the flames of of um of fraud it's just not even true mm. it, it, even if it isn't i mean no one cares right it's yeah. like when you see like a video of something that's related to the the, the caption will relate relate it to an extremely um kind of topical current affair and then mm. someone will come along and say that was a video taken four years ago in a different country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And all of these yeah. big accounts are reposting this thing that someone's created thinking it's true when it's not, right? Because they haven't double-checked it. Um, and there's no, um, you know, they, they've clearly made an error there. And there's never a question of, okay, we'll just delete the tweet and carry on doing what we're doing. There was no sort of thinking of, oh, maybe, we, <laughs> maybe we're misinforming people here. Mm. And at which point it's like, okay, first time is ignorance uk let you off second time well you're clearly misinforming people that's just this is not on why would you continue to do that i would yeah and that happens a lot with the the big uh bitcoin and crypto accounts and it's uh it it just means that people are more misled and people are more misinformed and we end up with uh, more of the same problems and you'd hope that in the bitcoin space where we're all supposed to be low time preference and thinking about the future we wouldn't need as much of this um jumping on clickbaity style stories and yet it yet it still exists yeah and it's, yeah. It's, it's kind of endemic isn't it and actually so shout out to so michael dunworth i haven't met mike yet but he's a good friend of mine uh, a friend of mine, Peter's brother, and we were talking on Twitter about original content. He's like, original mm -hmm. is the key. And so mm -hmm. what you're kind of describing here would, would really kind of chime with what Michael was saying is that that would be the, the interesting area to focus on. It's like, if you're a source of original and high quality content, then people will come and find you essentially. Um, yeah. And to, to 90 percent of my work, by the way, is original. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Well, like, and then I you am, get that phrase, don't you? That the uh, the best artists steal. So <laughs> who knows, right? Um, and I actually saw an article just today that was posted, or or must be in the last day or so, about El Salvador and the mm -hmm. tourism that's happening there. So can you talk to me a little bit about that story? Because I think that country is just such an interesting topic at the moment in that you know at one end of the scale you've got a, a politician who has created a, a more and more authoritarian regime but is absolutely banging the drum of bitcoin in such a way that you kind of have to say well 
you're definitely improving things for most people there. So mm-hmm. maybe it's okay. Um, but yeah, I think you, you, you mentioned some kind of crazy tourism stat where there's like 99% more tourism than there was or something. Just talk us through that as an example of one of your uh, latest articles. Sure. So this is actually more of a reblog than original content for, for my sins, but it was one of those um, pieces. <laughs> where, yeah. <laughs> this is, um, so the, so basically the national paper picked it up and it was front page news, you know, El Diario Salvador. And it basically said, you know, tourism increases 83% year on year. And inevitably all the big Bitcoin and Twitter accounts just retweet that. So I ring them up yesterday afternoon and I was like, where does this stat come from? And I get through to the Ministry of Tourism who's saying, actually, you know, we didn't even create this this stat. It comes from the World Travel Organization, the WTO. So then I speak to them and I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Is this legit? And they say, yes. Um, the figure comes from the fact that the 82% uh, or whatever it is, um, is because it's actually... Um, down 19% on the negative levels of 2019. It was a very convoluted way of saying basically that tour- tourism this year has been firing in El Salvador. So I speak to them and then I speak to a couple of the Bitcoiners that have been to El Salvador recently and be like, do you really get the sense that lots of people are flocking to, to El Salvador? Inevitably they say yes, because you know they're Bitcoiners and they want the El Salvador experiment to, to go well. And then I spoke to a few of the people that actually managed the Escape to El Salvador project and said, uh, and, you know, asked them about the three Bitcoin residency uh, plan, you know, the idea that you could buy residency in El Salvador for three mm. Bitcoin. Mm. And so, you know, it's merged part of this volcano bonds thing. So I, it, it was a reblog in the sense that, that I didn't find that figure originally, but I did speak to the sources and find out where this stat actually came from, because lots of stats are thrown around and no one knows where they actually came from and sometimes they can come from you know just hearsay and then they become a fact after a while um there was a there used to be a really good radio 4 program that used to debunk a lot of these facts that would come up um was it called like more or less or something um but in terms of the original content and this is something that cointelegraph um prides itself on and is amazing for um we pitch stories all the time that will be um, we'll get a tip off from someone like last week it was about Gibraltar and how these coffee chains, Costa Coffee and Hotel Chocolat and people like that were about to accept Bitcoin. And I was like, this is awesome. Like we're in Europe and we're paying Bitcoin over the lightning network in a Costa Coffee. It just felt very strange. And it flew in the face of that argument that, you know, no one's going to use Bitcoin to pay for their coffee. Mm. And so I flew to Gibraltar, spoke to the manager of the, the chains, spoke to the ministry of the minister of finance in Gibraltar, and then spoke to the company. It was actually Coin Corner that partnered with them to get this um, partnership over the line. And I published all this. And then two minutes later, all the big Twitter accounts are, um, are retweeting this information without using the source. And I'm like, why? Why bother? Why, why should I even go? to you know find the source of information um set up interviews with people network to get into certain boardrooms and uh you know ministerial offices when ultimately whatever you research and report is going to be used by someone else to disseminate that information i'm being a bit cynical here but that's interesting though so that's um yeah that's that's a sense of frustration over ownership of information and Mm -hmm. a lack of um uh a lack of value in return for the work. Mm-hmm. It's, it is, it's, it's kind of like copyright, copywriting a song, right? You know, you, you've, you've created this piece of information that is unique to you and you want to make sure that you get paid for it indefinitely. And so yep. why isn't that the case like with a primary piece of research like what you explained? And um, 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, how might that be different in a world of value for value? I don't know, but it's it's certainly something that will change, right? Like if the incentive mm. model is such that people get paid for retweeting your content with your name in it, i.e. they share in the, the spoils of their work, then maybe that wouldn't happen. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know how that would work though, but gosh, how interesting. Um, and what, what I really I hear there that, though, yeah. Joe, is that the 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 methodical process that you go through to curate information and actually clarify that things are correct. Like I will forever now read your articles in a more trusting way. There'll be other people listening to this that will be the same, uh, which is great to hear. <laughs> Thanks. But it's it's also like journalism is an is a is a great profession that has been unfairly kind of tainted lately just because of a lot of the the misinformation and disinformation that's been thrown around in my opinion and i now just i like just oh, no, don't, it's trust, a joke that, i don't trust a lot of stuff right but i don't either there are real you? journalists out there doing real stuff and somehow mm. it's about you know homing in on them and and really just listening to the right people um yeah and i've been misled as well a few times by the the pr stuff there's it's very hard even i mean this sounds um it's it's hard even to be a journalist nowadays because even when you speak to the source of information, you're you're questioning yourself. Okay, and why are they leaking this to me? Like mm -hmm. if we you know get if we because obviously we're privy to information on a daily basis that we're obviously not publishing as well. Um, and there's always that question of okay, what's in it for them if they use us as a platform to share this information? And you know that that's natural for any uh, journalistic platform. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of joke journalism now that's just you know pay for click stuff. And it's very, very hard. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of the whole place while also trying to create original content. And I've kind of settled on my own niche, which is, you know, positive human interest stories where um, people are using Bitcoin in their daily lives to make it better. And I've also found that that's a healthy, there's not some company behind the scenes telling, I don't know, I'm trying to scroll through an example now. Uh, you know, the, the, a guy that just used, was tipped Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. You know, no one's getting rich off him doing that. <laughs> you know, some a, a guy that his a cat was sick on his node and it took his node offline. <laughs> These are very silly examples, but you know, there's no one's being hurt, no one's being ripped off, and there's certainly um, no risk of someone's funds being uh, frozen in an exchange because of this sort of re reporting. You know, but it's yeah, it's a it's a bit of a tightrope <laughs> that's being walked. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well, Joe, listen, an hour has flown by. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, final qu Thank final you, question for you is uh, where can people reach out if they want to get in touch? Oh, uh, at Joe Nakamoto is my name on Twitter. Um, or You're Satoshi's I brother, I assume, that you just haven't told us. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are all relatives of Satoshi, I think. Um, that was cut. It was also because it rhymed. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the best way to, to reach out. My awesome. DMs are open. And yeah, if, if you have fun Bitcoin stories to share with me, then A, I love hearing them and B, I love reporting them. So please, yeah, drop my DMs and we'll set up a chat or well, I'll come I visit. I'd encourage you to have a dig through some of the back catalogue of conversations I've had because there's so many people with interesting stories that have <laughs> been taking day-to-day um, -day action changes. And obviously, like you probably know most of them already, but get in touch. Yeah, yeah with I've written about a few of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you probably know most of them already, but um, it's it's quite amazing what this thing's doing out there every day, and it doesn't get mm. talked about enough, and that's obviously what we're here for. So, uh, well, Joe, yeah, cheers. No Thank you so much for your time. A... 
master one tower is a new one and i've got a call with him next week so thank you do yeah brilliant yes yeah. <laughs> great example so so here's a guy who taught himself how to forex trade and is based in nairobi and he's helping to translate bitcoin content from english or whatever into african languages that potentially access another half a billion people mm. what do you know what i mean that's mm. massive um, and shout out to Master Guanta if he's listening. Awesome story. All right, Joe, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Cheers, Jake. My pleasure.